wholeheartedly in agreement with that. And I want us to talk about what that future might look like a bit and how we might play our role in that and our, the role that we play in that changes according to who we are and what our life stage is and all sorts of things. But I want us to have a good discussion about that in a second. The first thing I'd like for us to do as we jump in is to think about the big picture for just a little bit. So I wrote out a few statements here that I think are pretty important. Uh, those of you that know me well, MJ and I've spent time together in class, uh, Kyle and some others, you know, I'm always saying, you know, big picture, guys. <laughs> this is what we're looking at, the big picture. So what I want to start with is the church has always been a singing church. And there's no reason to believe that the church won't always sing. Though we don't know why God established a high and mysterious connection between faith and music, it has always been so. Beyond time and place, God has connected music and worship. For God to change this singing pattern now would go against the biblical and historical record and against all that we believe of God and God's work in the world. Now that's a pretty big kind of theological all-encompassing statement. But I think for us to even start to believe that for some reason the church wouldn't continue singing and singing wouldn't be as important, if not, I believe, more important in the future than it has been in the past, I think would be against all the evidence that we see around us. Music is more important in our culture than it's ever been. It plays a bigger role, a more integral role. Why would the future of the church go against that? There's nothing historically, biblically, or whatever I don't see to go against that. So that, to me, matters a whole lot. Okay? And what I'm trying to say here is that when we can see the big picture, then I think we can start to find ourselves in that picture. Okay. So that's why I think seeing big picture matters so much about how we see ministry. Because ultimately, in ministry in general, what I think and what I'm experiencing in my own context matters, but it's not the last word. Okay. It isn't the last word. The second segment I jotted down here is, from all that we know, God has big singing plans for eternity. As ministers involved with music, we get to connect directly with the singing of heaven. Earthly worship occurs in the meantime, the already but not yet, in which one foot is firmly planted in here and now, and one is in the yet to be. Our role is to bridge present reality with the reality of what will be. So I believe that we are in this in-between stage, and we are, it's already, and we're all in the meantime. And I've used that, that word quite a bit in the last few years in some different things I've said and written about. But this meantime experience is where we are. So that puts us also, that's what we do in the context. It's not just about what we do right now, but it's about what we will be doing and what is already occurring we are just not quite there yet. So this is a much bigger picture. The third statement, even if people in our congregations and in our ministerial groups, like staff and those kinds of people, don't perceive the larger theological and liturgical frame surrounding music and worship leadership, their failure to sense the larger picture does not change the reality of the likelihood that God will use music even more in the future draw the world toward unified worship of the risen Christ. Too often, our day-to-day -day work gets supported by how others perceive our ministry, and what we know to be true about how God, God's priorities get lost in the, 
and what we know to be true about how God's priorities get lost in the process. So what I'm saying there is really that whether other people authenticate your belief that music is so important and ministry through music is so incredibly valuable, whether or not other people believe that or whether they see it, I believe it does not change the reality that it is true. Okay? Now, there will be plenty of people around you to diminish what you're doing. And people that will say, oh, this music will never work, this whatever. I mean, all kinds of naysayers. And churches are great at being naysaying places, actually. Unfortunately, and church staffs can even be good at diminishing, you know, and throwing kind of cold water on our energies. Or at least we might perceive it that way, even if it weren't meant that way. But that doesn't change the reality that what we do really is grounded and important and has a solid future. So my belief is that we have to make the choice of whether we want to be a part of that future or not. Now, for some of us, we had a roundtable discussion today at lunch, and for some of us, the future is challenging. There are things about the future which really are difficult for us in our present circumstance. But that doesn't change the larger picture that God is in control of us. And as a friend of mine said, God's good for it. I mean, I'm a friend who's always telling me, you know, Randall, God's good for it. You know, you just gotta, you just gotta believe, are you gonna be in control of your life or are you gonna let God be in control? This friend of mine says this to me all the time, you know. You just gotta decide, you know, who's your God, you or God, you know. What are you gonna do here? Well, I, I believe that she's right. I really believe that she's right. Okay? So, so many times we, not that we can't, not that we won't live in reality, and we won't live within our own context, but that doesn't have the last word. I was in a session a couple of years ago, actually about a year and a half ago, in this student mentoring session, and this woman was in the group and she said, you know, some people have perceived me and called me a negative person, but she says the truth is I'm just a realist. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, lady, I don't want any of your doubts. <laughs> I, I just, I am, um, you know, I am in a place where I, I like to be around people who are re realistically hopeful, I guess I might say. But I am always want, going to want to err on the side of positivity. And if I'm going to go down in life as something, I don't want it to go down as being the negative and the naysayer. I want to be on the high side of whatever the, the balance is. Okay? And I think there's evidence that the church music, the church music is not you know, going to hell in a handbasket, as it were. Even though we have a lot of problems. Okay? Now, how do we get how do we get to where we are? Some of this stuff is very much in the, in the book that um, I mentioned along the way. But in the last half of the previous century, the center of power shifted from the academy through the church to the community. In the 1950s, I came up with this little idea, the halls of academia. There was a relative stability to the church music, the church music in the 1950s. Uh, it was a, quite a prosperous time in our culture, in our country. We were few years away from the big war, the economy was thriving, uh, people were going back to seminary, the GI Bill was prominent, lots of training happened, some of you in here probably 
went to seminary at times right after the war, and churches were eager to embrace uh, well-trained musicians and people that were coming out, and the role was to leave you all, I was not trained in the 1950s, but if any of you were, the goal, and even actually the way I was trained, was here are the tools, here are the things that you're supposed to present to the people, here are the tools, your role is to go and present them. Here are the answers to the questions, and you are to go out and give the people the answers to the questions. As I've said in some other settings, what some of us didn't realize is that we had the wrong answers, and the questions that we thought we were going to ask were not the ones that asked, and we figured out we didn't have the right answers at all. Okay. And then we had to reimagine, re re-gear re it. But the halls of academia. Um, prosperity clergy were well-trained, and churches were proud of well-trained and classically trained musicians in their churches. Okay. That seems to be, the, the history, history seems to bear that out. The 1960s I call the church basement. It's a time of rapid change, uh, national change. Lots of things, civil rights, um, voting rights, all kinds of things were changing in our culture. Protest, reform, anti-establishment, the beginnings of youth music. So down in the basement, young people started singing songs that were different, which was some of us, I have those memories, some of you were right in the heart of that, and we were singing things, we were doing things a bit differently. Okay. Most movements in the church start in the basement, okay. and they find that they gradually make their way upward, as it were. So that was the 60s, the 1970s, up the stairs. It started creeping its way up, it started making its way into higher places and making its way into big church. So, the start of the praise and worship really came, started to trace the roots of that into the 70s. Uh, there was a time of shock, uh, it was the beginnings of recording, uh, beginning of recording, <coughs> the, first, the first Christian artists started making their way in the 1970s, and it began to be a bit mainstream. And what had started out as just the young people doing their thing, started to find its way into the congregation into the sanctuary, particularly through youth choirs and through the music that youth choirs were singing, which had a different beat and was, for those of us who were youth in the 70s, was absolutely invigorating. And I was not in a church, I grew up in a tiny little church, and I didn't really have access to all that was going on, but I had friends that went to some bigger churches, and the cool stuff they got to do just filled me with me. Uh, but I knew it was happening, I just knew that I wasn't in Straight of it. But it was, it was phenomenal. It was, and, and young people today couldn't comprehend how engaging it would be to sing something that would be a beat that you might connect with. I remember we had a little tiny youth choir in our church that was just a pickup group, it was mostly my cousins and me, <laughs> and, which was quite, quite a group. My mother uh, has 17 siblings. And so, uh, had 17 siblings. So there were there were lots of cousins. <laughs> so there were a bunch of us. But we decided that we would sing um, Brethren We Have Met to Worship and sing it there. Brethren We Have Met to Worship. And we decided we would do it well. It was high in contribution. And in those days, people didn't spare young people. You know, young people didn't have the power. We talked about it in the 8 o'clock session. Give a rhythm, 
about whether uh, it wasn't our church, whatever. It wasn't like today where, you know, whatever they want, we'll do because we don't, you know, God forbid that they will leave. I'm not saying that lightly, I mean, really, but it was a different day, you know, it's a whole different day. But, you know, it's, it's very, very much different. The 1970s, up the stairs, and then the 1980s, now where to? A time of, I think, of denial, a time of believing that if we ignore all these new things, they will disappear. They will be gone. This is a pendulum swing, and it has swung as far as it's going to swing, and this is it. Um, but there were rumblings of that, I think, in the 1980s. I was a seminary student in the 1980s, and some of you were, and some of us were there together. And the, what we were taught is, um, this is all, if we just ignore this, the law will be gone. And it will be gone soon, and this will be the end of it, end of it. And so there was a huge level of denial during that time. The 1990s, uh, we began to believe, wow, the church really is changing. Some things are, there's no denying that things are different than they were. Church growth was a big deal in the 1990s, for those of you who are around. There were lots of talks about the worship as the front door of the church and how do we become engaging. There's a lot we learned from the church growth. A lot we didn't need to learn from it, but a lot we did. Some important things. Um, worship was something that we used, in a sense, it became commodified. It was a commodity in a sense that we used in order to, but at least we were talking about worship, which was something we had done very much historically in many of our denominations. And we began, if you remember, to explain styles. Do you remember all those different six or seven different styles we had? And I've done sessions in the 90s on all those styles and all that stuff. I mean, you know, it sounds antiquated now, you know? Um, but that's where the 90s were. There was no denying. We began to really kind of come into some sense of reality, so that's when things were different. And then the year 2009, I put this opening the doors. And I believe that in this next period of time, we're too really too close to say what's happened in the last 10 years. I think that's, you know, it'll take us another few years to really know. But I believe that we have been sort of opening the door and that the music of the church is being, is wafting, is wafting itself out into the world. And we are asking the questions now, how is music going to engage with culture? And not how will music, how will the church take over culture? Because there's no historical record to believe that we've ever done any sort of thing, nor that we probably ever will. But how are we going to engage in culture and the belief that God is not only in the sanctuary, that God is in the world, we must go to where God is and engage with God in those places, and then we must allow music to reflect and be a part of all of that. And I think that's kind of where, how I would describe it. That. And some of that's in flood, I said the book, and just a little bit of unpacking that. So, assessing where we are. Um, I think that most, that the church, the music of today, is strongly controlled and based on power, and different kinds of power. Power of the academy, power of the church itself, the power of commerce. And most of those power of things, uh, power meaning power of a few people, and we had a session on power this morning. But the, the problem, the deal is, we say the power is the place where we're not. Okay. So people in certain instances in the church say, oh, well, it's all the publishers and the marketing people and the commerce side. That's where the power, they're controlling everything. Well, 
Well, those people would say, well, if you didn't buy it, you wouldn't ride it, and you wouldn't do this, and you know, there's all these other sides to it. So it depends on, usually power is only negative when we don't have it. Okay? So we'll put that on a little bit, put that hat on and wear it a few minutes, then it changes our perspective quite a bit. But we are strongly dependent on power, and we have thrown around power within the church and within music in often unhealthy ways. For instance, how many of you have been a part of conferences where there was strong bashing of some other kind of music that was not the primary uh, agreed upon music of the conference? Okay? I've been a part of that far too many times. And I had this, I decided about 15 years ago that I would speak against any kind of situation like that. Because I think that our world of the musicians who serve the church, if we don't band together, if we don't, if we don't stand for each other, even if we don't all agree, then we're really, really up against impossible odds. And if someone is standing for the music of the church, in a wholehearted, convicting way, we must stand in solidarity with those people in the same way that we would stand in solidarity with someone from a very remote culture who was worshiping in their cultural context. Because to be in a different cultural context does not mean you have to be in Kenya. Actually, you can find worship in Kenya that completely mimics what we do here, which is not altogether a healthy thing. <laughs> but sometimes we would embrace the culture of another ethnic group, but not the culture of the people across the street. There are churches in Waco that would sing global songs out for Wazoo, but wouldn't sing a praise and worship song if their life depended on it. And we have 15,000 college students right here within a mile. Now, there might be some question that we need to ask. Okay. Now, based on how it's leader-dominated, a lack of shared and communal leadership it is top-down. Now, we've talked a lot about that already, about leader-dominated and what we can do. We had a whole kind of session this morning talking about that, so you know, that's stuff we can talk about later. But... We are so dependent on leaders to the point where many times churches will say, we need a music leader to come in and bring the Spirit of God to us. You know, believing that somebody's going to come in and just change the whole thing. We believe too much in one person and not enough in all of us. Now, what, how, do we, how do we play this out? You know, I don't know how we make all this stuff work. But I know I'm trying in my own context, and I'm trying little by little. And I don't think change comes about by throwing everything out and then assuming some other new thing. But change comes about by shifting one little thing. Remember I told you if you were in the session this morning that if we imagine all of ourselves in a field, for instance, if I move here, then I am now closer to Don he might have to move because I move and somebody else might move into this space and all of us in the whole organization, the whole communal environment will shift. So even within your own music ministry context, to 
change something, even relatively small, shifts everything. So if you were thinking of a change model, what if you were to change two things this year and two things next year, where would you be in five years? You wouldn't have only changed ten things, right? Because every two things you changed would have changed a whole string of other things, and then pretty soon your church would be very, very different by just a few slight adjustments. Okay? You see? Well, it's scary, but it's also empowering, isn't it? Because it doesn't mean you have to do a lot. It means you have to do a little.
personality-driven, and are you that person? It's a question that's worth asking. It really is worth asking. And it might not mean it's bad, altogether not positive. It just means, as um, Carol and I were talking about, you have to know it. you, you got to know it or you will abuse it if you don't know, what the, if you don't know what's going on. Um, some other things about personality-driven, charismatic, uh, when I read descriptions of music openings, oftentimes the, people, the word dynamic is in almost everybody's description these days. Energetic is very common, and charismatic is often common, and they're often age parameters. And a couple of years ago, this guy told me that he was interviewed for a church in this uh, wonderful state of Texas, and he was asked in the interview, would you be willing to dye your hair if we were to uh, hire you here? Okay. That was in Texas, okay? And, um, yeah. So, you know, not that something's wrong with dyeing your hair, but you shouldn't be forced to do that to get the job. Or just any part of your mind. Yeah. You know, if you dye your hair, something else is going to look bad. I'm just telling you. <laughs> yeah. Talk about shifting and everything moving. Like, if you dye your hair, something else is certainly going to go wrong with you. You better watch out. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, another one is male dominated. Um, even in music ministry, we're still predominantly male in, in our ranks. And I think it's really important that we call women forth. The place where women are most vacant, are most not visible, is in praise and worship. Yeah. And I, my belief on that is because the guys are, it's cool to be a guy and play a guitar and jam and be a part of the band. And girls aren't nearly as comfortable in those environments and they may be doing some other things. And then they just don't get in on that act early on. And then they don't get in the youth band and what have you. And then by the time they get to college, they're already feeling like maybe I'm not very good at that kind of leadership. But I think it's important that we consider that that's one of the challenges that we have facing us. That our worship leadership is primarily male dominated. We are um, obsessed with performance, and performance instead of participation. And we, people in our congregation, a great way to learn what your congregation thinks is to hear whether they use performance language or participation language when they describe worship. So, what's a way that people use, how would you describe performance language in worship? talking about their experiences of worship. What are some statements people might make that would be performance language? The band is great. Yeah, the choir or the pastor. Yeah, wow, the pastor, that was a great sermon today. The choir sounded amazing today. And, you know, we all like to hear that. You know, we all like to hear that. But it's not the choir led me in worship today. That song really meant a lot to me. That text was important. That led me to experience God in a new way. You see, all of that is kind of the difference in the performance and the participation language. Thanks for letting me participate in that song today, or I like that song, meant that it was my evaluation was the primary consideration. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but it does mean I'm in a position to evaluate, which means performance, right? I go to a performance and I have the right to be a critic and evaluate. So most of the comments that I get back 
about worship have to do with evaluative performance comments rather than participation comments? I think it's a lack of understanding, yes, and it's a lack of modeling, and we don't correct it because we like it to be. Thank you. 
but the, the spikes, the sales just go crazy and downloads go crazy on Saturday night. So is that lack of imagination or what? How imaginative can most of us be in the last month? What kind of great work of art would we decide that we are going to do on Saturday night to uh, put in the art show on Sunday from a curator perspective? Would you wait till the night before to set up a display of a huge works of art? Well, duh, no. So, but, but there we go. It's a lack of imagination. What works is we're obsessed with what works instead of what could be. It's a much better question. What could we do rather than what could, how much could we do rather than how little can we get by with? I, again, it's kind of try, but I tell my students a lot of times, I would like to um, it's totally lost my thought. Um, anybody else trying to say, uh, uh, I'll take it. Yeah, but with the whole idea of living your life in maximum to seven minutes, that's what I was going to say. How much can I experience rather than how little can I get by? You say, how much could I do? How much life could I live rather than how much could I avoid? It's a so very different perspective. It's daunting, actually. 
lack of memory haunts us. Uh, lack of memory means we have only short or shorter term memory, and we don't have a wide enough memory to build upon. And memories need to always be expanding. Okay, the, the more we, have, the older we are, the more we should be able to build on memory. And ideally, the more imaginative we should be, because we have more foundation from which to pull ideas. My friend Al Travis talks about um, improvising, okay? And his idea, his thing about improvising is that I can, he can improvise, not me, but speaking for him, I can improvise because I have practiced for years and I have many, many pieces of music that I can pull, that are in my mind and I can pull ideas from all of that memory thing and I can improvise from that. I think the same thing is true for us as worship planners. His idea also, that was from a sermon actually, that most of life is improvisation. And that whatever we have practiced and memorized and what is in ourselves is what comes out in that improvisatory moment. Because almost everything in life is improvisatory. We don't really know what we're going to say until we're in that moment. And so that improvisatory idea takes place that's where imagination happens. The song of the church will survive because the people of God will always sing, but church music with all its trappings will not. Church music as we've known it will not be the same. It will not, and we can protect it, we can hold it up, and we can give our life to it, but it will not be worth it. The song of the church is worth it, but not the stuff of it, okay? Does that make any sense? Not all the, the ways that it's done may shift and may change, and maybe they, they are, and whether we know it or not, it's happening. So, the music of the church of the future should be inclusive of all. It should be historically grounded and culturally connected. Okay, so if you want to, it should be contextually relevant within your own context, okay? Which is different for all of us. It should be communally based. It should be based within a communal context, and there should be opportunity for communal input, community exchange. It should be reaching forward. It should be looking toward what is. It should be hospitable and welcoming. That means it should not exclude people. And we should do all within our ability to help people be engaged and involved in meaningful ways rather than doing things and saying, I know people want to understand this, but we're going to do it anyway. There's just not a lot of place for that. And you can always set the table for things that are not easily understandable, but we must set the table so that people can engage meaningfully in the things that they wouldn't normally understand. Does that make sense? Okay. I can provide context to things that are not. And there was a day when we didn't believe that to be true. For some of us, my age and older, there was a day when we said, oh, let it rise up to it. You know, hey, this is great music. You know, we put it out there, and by golly, you either step up to the plate, or, or you live in your ignorance, and you're on this ignorance, and, you know, happy life. You know, and we really did say that in the church. Not really, but maybe, maybe so. I don't know. The worship of the future must be multi-musical. We must learn to negotiate within different musical languages. Did you notice how beautifully these people today, the lettuce and worship, how beautifully we 
negotiated really nicely, smart ways of dealing with different musical languages. Now, that would be challenging for some of us, but not impossible. You don't have to speak the different musical languages as fluently as they did to try it. Okay? But if you don't speak the different musical languages, you will never travel outside your own culture. And how brief would our life be if we never experienced a different kind of culture? And musically, it's the same kind of thing. So we speak it until we learn to do it better, or we bring in people to interpret it for us, and people to travel along with us, and on and on all this goes. Okay? And it should be missionally focused. It should be focused on finding where God is in the world and how that all connects. I don't have all the answers for this, but here we go. Standing in the way of the future, one thing is denial. Denial is saying everything is fine. Um, and we shut out everybody who's different than and we shut out all kinds of different opinions. We only read the things that we believe in. Okay, there are some professional magazines that I would say are very much a denial. This is the way it is, and this is all that you read in some places, you know, whatever. We believe that this is all there is. Uh, we deny that we have problems and that there are problems that need to be solved. But that's not a lesson for help in any impersonal life, is it? And it's certainly not a not healthy for the church, it's not healthy for the music of the church. Uh, provincialism, protecting our part of the world. We forget that there is another part of the world. We do everything to protect the part of the world that we're comfortable in. Recent memory, uh, recent memory affects all of us. And I mentioned that the other day, that college students' recent memory is like the Passion Conference last January. I mean, that's, that's, that's where it all is happening. You know, recent memory for some others, might be, you know, the gators and the sevens. You know, that might be the last thing people have listened to. <coughs> I don't know. Retreating, um, pulling away when discussions are tough. You know, some of some people who just win when, when it gets a little tense, they just walk out and say, sorry, I don't want to talk about that. So Well, we don't get anywhere a lot of times because we don't want to talk about that, because it might be painful. What if you don't talk about it? Then why? How much growth is possible through that? So you have to ask yourself the other side of those questions instead of just saying, let's be saying, what about posturing? What does that mean? I think that posturing is spending more energy defending than listening. Okay, I don't know if that's a good definition, but that's what I jotted down in my head. It's more energy defending than listening. And when we find ourselves in that position, Posturing. Posturing is also bullying, and it can be go to different levels. Uh, control, control of so control of ourselves, control of our environment, and then ultimately then control of all those around us. So we have to be completely in control of all these things. Um, but if you're only if it's only as big as you, then if you control, it's only going to be as big as you are. Nothing you're a part of will be larger than you unless you involve other people. So you have to decide, do I want to be something that's bigger than I am, or do I want it to be Randall-sized? And can it be Randall-sized and God-sized both at the same time? As much as God is in me, but that's not as much as you might think. So, it's a really important question to ask. It's very important. Wow, this is so convicting, isn't it? Why didn't we talk about all these things?
too much power, unhealthy power, galvanizing power, and all those things we talked about, the limits of things. Self-sufficiency. Uh, I can do it. Uh, Self-sufficiency is the enemy of community. Did you hear that? Self-sufficient is the enemy of community. If I can do it, I don't need you. such diversity in the church as there's no other time in history that's been 
So what does that say about us? I gave a speech a few years ago why, why this is a good time to be a, a church petition. I meant to go back and look at those archives. It's been a while ago, but I went to, meant to go back and look. But some of this is kind of ingrained in that. The potential for training of church musicians unconventionally offers immense hope and challenge. I think conventionally we need to train musicians of the church, but I think that we have a right opportunity to use other ways to train musicians of the church. And, you know, I know I should be in some way involved in that, and I admit that I'm not. So, but we need to step forward in finding new ways to empower musicians. Because it doesn't matter who gets the credit. It doesn't matter whether they graduate from Baylor or any other place. It really doesn't matter who gets the credit as long as people are empowered to serve God in an effective way. See, that's against the way that a lot of us have seen our world. The riches of most creative times in culture are when the past is still visible and the future is already present. So when we've lived, and we have some of that ability, that's kind of an awkward statement, but we, for many of us, we've seen so much change, see. We've seen change in a career of 30 or 40 years, or even for you younger people, in five or six years, you've seen so much, you've seen so much change that might have taken a lifetime to have seen in what might be a five-year period now. So you can really see what was, and you can see what's coming ahead. And that provides such a creative, potentially creative environment, which I think is it's a fertile time. It's a very fertile, possible time. New generations of younger people who are coming of age are open to all styles of worship and to all that God seems to be doing. They are baggageless, and they intend to stay so. Okay. I have not encountered a student in four or five years who just said, I don't like it. Building the life kind of music. Now, the 15, 20 years before that was very common. I've had classes that set in distinctive rows. And this was the this row, and this was the this row. And they made it really tough to be the teacher. But I haven't had students in a number of years. They're just, I mean, they're just open. Oh, Morgan, oh my gosh, wow, that is amazing. And whatever global song, oh my goodness, God's in that. You know, and they're so seeing God in all these different kinds of things. And they, they don't carry this baggage. And they don't want your baggage either. So the best way you can turn off younger people is to pile your baggage on them and expect that somehow they're going to carry it for you. Now that's not fair to them. And it's not very, it's not the way to engage in the and if you want to turn them off, start talking about worship awards. And they say, oh, I didn't fight that. I don't give a rip about that. What in the world do you need to do? Don't bother me with that kind of stuff. That just weights me down and tires me. I guess that's what they're saying. They're not interested in that. They're not interested in baggage. But that is immensely hopeful. They are not close to classical styles. They're not close to core music. They, whatever is beautiful, they are, and whatever will be beautiful and most engaging and intellectually engaging, they'll hang in there just as long as you want to go for it. Now that's perhaps the most hopeful thing that I've found. And I'm, we're depending on them, okay? We need them. We need to nurture them. So as just a word, you're part of this conference. Encourage these young people, some of whom are in the room. 
So I encourage, encourage younger people. It's really important. Many younger people are willing to take Jesus' call to risk everything seriously. We said we were willing, but I wasn't. They're really, I mean, they're willing to do radical things younger people want. And that's beautiful and amazing. And it has the potential for God to do something phenomenal. Denominational labels are diminishing, and new, looser, and more transparent structures are forming. We know that to be true. It may not be our church, but it is really true. So true. But looser organizations that don't make sense of people that are teaming up to work together, that don't make sense from past structures. And that has potential for all kinds of cross-pollination and for different kinds of uh, things to, to emerge. Performance within the church's music is decreasing, and authenticity is on the rise. Um, I believe that is happening. And I, and I believe that, that our, my generation has to accept the fact that we were as performance-driven as younger people playing guitars. We were just differently performance-driven. Um, I think we have to own that and, and then say, now I own my baggage now. Let's just talk about performance. But younger people really do want engagement to happen. They're committed to that. So, what to watch out for? A couple of things. Um, this could go on. But a growing musical imperialism that is depleting the indigenous music of the world. It is being replaced with music in a popular style from the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia and New Zealand. I think that's something that we need to be protecting. For instance, when I go to Kenya, and I travel to Kenya a bit in the last few years, um, people in Kenya are pretty fascinated by crazy worship music. And they can, and I was in Malaysia a year ago, and they can imitate crazy worship to, well, imitate, they can sing it just like it sounds on somebody's YouTube. They can, I saw a group of uh, young people in Malaysia that were in an interior place where we rode an all-terrain vehicle for two hours, rode a boat for 45 minutes, and arrived in this remote community. And that night, they stood in front of us and did all that movement to a that was just like a YouTube video. And sang all the stuff and did all the movement that was from an American YouTube video. I don't think that's the healthiest thing we would want to be putting out there. So what we did in that community was our students, they had a set of gongs over here on the side that were, had dust all over them. Well, um, Matt, we took the gongs and we, our students picked the gongs up and we put them with the music that we were singing. And we had taken some of their songs back to them that somebody in our team had arranged. And so what we did was take their music back to them to give so they could value their music again. And we got their gongs, and we played their gongs so that they have permission now to play their, the gongs of their indigenous culture. You see? So we need to do more of that instead of wanting to stop the indigenous music, but we need to do ways to engage because we need all of those voices. I think praise and worship is going to be the unifying sound of the world. Because okay? it is the one thing that everybody I've 
everywhere I've been in the last 10 or 12 years, everybody is doing crazy worship. It's going to unify us with a common sound, but we don't want to lose the many colors of sounds for one day. Yes. That's one reason why choral music may be, be, may be considered a category of indigenous music that we might need to be stirring up. But younger people are not closest to people. They would actually love to be engaged in I mean, the guys I work with within the Aerobins are, they, they love choral music. I mean, and uh, they will, they'll talk about seeing these experiences with immense emotion and their lives. It's, it's, it's powerful. It's authentic. So you can't undersell any of that stuff. You really can't undersell the power of all of that. But, but there's some truth in what we're saying, I think. But, but there's, been, there's been repetitive songs throughout this year. We've always sang repetitive songs. We just happened to get critical of them in the last few years, and we used it as a negative thing. And it isn't altogether negative. We've sung, you know, Curie uh, LA song. Okay. The second one is churches that continue to 
copy mostly, another thing to watch out for, mostly the worship of others rather than shaping worship in their own context. Places that you just go and, and some of us, you know, we've had a lot of discussion in this conference about pastors who did take their seats. But this is working here, it must work here. If you just do this, this will work. Copy this model. That is old school out the wazoo to copy some kind of model. We just don't do that anymore. It's not cool. Not only is it not cool, it doesn't really work. And the people are not going to be engaged by And we must be able to lead in more grassroots and more uh, organic kinds of ways. Okay, there are two other handouts which uh, we're going to have on the table for you. One of those is some church music projections that I did in 2000, and the other is some church music projections I did about two years ago. And then I did some more a few months ago to different things that I did. But I'm just giving you these things to look at and read, and you know, I don't know that I think all these things are actually going to happen, but I'm looking and always trying to, to uh, observe and think about what's out there and what's going on. Yeah. So I just thought it might be read for you to take it. Thank you for your interest and thanks for your time.